0: We'll grow closer together
1: Good morning and welcome to episode 1393 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast on fangrafts.com. Brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. Uh, how are you?
0: Uh, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> you sound disgusted with yourself for asking the I obligatory questions.
1: I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. So, what's up?
0: Yeah, I'm maintaining homeostasis. Nothing unusual going on here. So what do you want to talk about? I have a bunch of things to talk about. I don't know what your topic is, but I've got some banter. I figured first we could talk about Albert Pujols and his homecoming weekend in St. Louis because I really enjoyed that. I wasn't circling it on the calendar in advance or anything, but I was surprised by how much I got out of that. I think it, it sort of took me by surprise even that this is a thing anymore, that like, We can go years without a player playing in a certain city because I just kind of think of baseball, you know, it's interleague games all the time now throughout the season. It's odd to me almost that we could go what 2011 to 2019 now without Pujols having played in St. Louis, without Trout having played in St. Louis that whole time. And because there's so much interleague play, because everyone's got MLB TV and it's pretty easy to watch other people's games, I just don't really think of players not visiting a certain city as a phenomenon anymore. But in this case, it was. Batting
1: fifth, number five,
0: first baseman, Albert Pujols. And it was pretty special that he came back to St. Louis and That he got the reception that he got, that he hit a home run, just like old times, and he got a standing ovation and a curtain call, and he had kind of an emotional press conference, and it was an opportunity to revisit just how good Pete Pujols was, which your colleague Bradford Doolittle did in an article for ESPN, but I think had come up even earlier. like You were tweeting about how Mike Trout now has the best right-on-right OPS in history, and then Joe Pita pointed out to you on twitter that albert Pujols did through the same point in his career and so i kind of think that the long slow decline of albert in anaheim has obscured our memories somewhat of how great he was in that period not that he was trout but just this visit kind of gave us an opportunity to relive that a little and it was really nice
1: yeah yeah it was i mean it's You would never have thought this necessarily in advance, but seven or or eight years, whatever it is, seven years, is sort of like the perfect amount of time. Usually when a player comes back, he has either just left uh, in which case, it's good. It's good to be able to say goodbye. I mean, you know, they the player gets to do the back page ad, and then the fans get mm-hmm. to cheer for him when he comes back. But there's some resentment, uh, usually, to, yeah. among some people. And, and it's just sort of like, he's you probably, you know, he's usually still good. And you're kind of mad that he's not on your team. And uh, or it's the opposite. You get a guy who comes after he retires, and he does the whole ceremony on the field. And, um, you know, maybe there's a microphone or, or something like that. But uh, or maybe it's an old timer's game, but he's no longer playing. And and Albert Pujols is uh, kind of like right in the middle of playing and also an an old timer. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and he's sort of like in a way, he's, it's like a non-threatening visit yeah. that he's made. Right. and but he hit that homer uniform.
0: when St. Louis was up for nothing, and it was a solo shot, so it didn't really matter that much. You didn't have to be mad about it if you were Cardinals fan, so you could just purely celebrate it. And the two-one pitch to Albert Pujols. Albert hits it a ton out to deep left. He gave us 11 years
1: of memories we'll never forget. He's just given us another.
0: So. Yeah, he's almost, uh, he's past being a threat, so I guess there's no need to boo someone, and after that long a time, I mean, I always think it's silly when great players get booed by their former fans just because they went somewhere and and signed a deal. Sometimes it's not even them signing a deal, sometimes they just get traded to another team, and yet they come back and get booed, which makes zero sense to me, but in this case, uh, he went for the most money, and... I think uh, our friend Will Leach wrote for MLB.com that neither the Cardinals nor Pujols has been quite the same since they separated, at least in, in some senses. I guess the Cardinals have, have done okay. But Will wrote very nicely in his newsletter this weekend about just what Pujols meant to him and his dad as Cardinals fans. And and it was an opportunity also to relive the Pujols' origin story and how he kind of came out of nowhere. And Derek Gould did a, a nice piece about a trade that could have happened the <laughs> cat back in what 2000 when the cardinals opted to trade Brian Johnson a, a fourth round pick instead of Pujols who Oh Ben give me more give me more of this article I love yeah. I love <laughs> trades that didn't happen involving future yeah. superstars so No that's the best kind of, of article of story Read and, the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> I will link to it for people who want to check it out but it's a uh, yeah so this was a, a story about how Pujols who had been a, of course a 13th round pick in the 1999 draft, the Padres had been interested in trading for him because a Padres scout had seen him in A-ball, I think, and was really fixated on him, thought he was the real deal. And the Cardinals were trying to trade for a backup catcher, and they did. They traded for Carlos Hernandez and a minor league utility man in July 2000 at the trade deadline. And so the question was whether the Padres were going to get Pujols or Ben Johnson and also Heathcliff Slocum <laughs> was in the deal too but the Padres were pushing for holes and it doesn't sound like it came that close like the Cardinals pretty much preferred holes, but they had to choose the 13th round guy over the 4th round guy who had been higher on prospect lists and was more of a, a scout favorite but Walt Jockety was quoted the Cardinals' former GM, said they didn't want to give up either of them, but there was no way they would trade Pujols because they had scouted their own system and they had just loved what they had seen of him. And, of course, he, the next spring, made the team out of spring training and was immediately amazing. So it doesn't sound like they were that close to doing it. But it was under consideration, at least, and you can imagine how that could have changed things if the, the following decade of Pujols in St. Louis had actually been Pujols on the Padres. I'm very confused by this trade.
1: Why? What were the Cardinals trading anybody for? Was this a salary dump?
0: They wanted a backup catcher, Carlos Hernandez, so that was the, the centerpiece of the trade. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <it's>
1: a, anybody <laughs> is a lot to give up for Carlos Hernandez. Can you yeah. imagine if it had been Albert Pujols At this point in his career, Carlos Hernandez was 33, had mm-hmm. missed all of his age 32 season, yep. had one year in his career with an OPS plus over 86, was batting 251, 316, 340 for the Padres with a 72 OPS plus and a negative 0.1 war, and then 17 games with the Cardinals later, he was out of baseball.
0: Yeah. He must have gotten hurt or something. He hit okay for them 17 games and that that was it. So good thing they didn't give up pools for him. Interesting that you look at this
1: career and say he must have gotten hurt or something. Well, (laughs) he did all right. He probably did get hurt or something because he only played the next year. He played two games in AAA and then the next year he played 10 games in AAA. Anyway, Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that this would have gone down as the all-time trade. (laughs) The all-time trade. Yes. The all timer. Especially because Pujols was
0: great the very next year. So it wasn't even like he was some lottery ticket and then many years later he panned out. It would have been a very quick turnaround between trade deadline of 2000 and dominance in 2001. So I don't get a sense of it. It wasn't like. Oh, we completed the trade like there. You know, like Barry Bonds was traded supposedly to Atlanta from the Pirates like the year before he ended up signing with San Francisco. And so that's a great what if. There are other what ifs, I think, about like Tom Seaver being traded to the Braves too. I guess everyone's almost being traded to the Braves and Jim Leland scuttled that Barry Bonds deal reportedly because he went and complained to ownership about losing Bonds. But that deal was like done and agreed to, and the press releases were being drawn up. And so this was not quite in that category. It was just something that was bandied about, but the Cardinals were too smart to actually make this mistake.
1: Heathcliff Slocum, also out of baseball after that year. Uh Uh, Nate Tebbs, who was the fourth name in that uh, minor leaguer, was uh, gone from the Cardinals add the next winter and out of baseball a year later mm-hmm. so quite the trade if you yep. just replace ben johnson's name with albert Pujols, <laughs> then yes we'd have a story yeah that's a, that's a good one all right,
0: right. Great mm-hmm. one.
1: fifth highest by the way fifth highest career war through age 30 in history that's how good albert Pujols, Pujols. was when he
0: yeah when he
1: left the fifth right. in history so yeah
0: Incredible hitter, good base runner, good fielder for a first baseman. Obviously, that's sort of what sets him and the Trout peak apart is that he was good for first baseman. Trout is center fielder and and is just a little bit better at everything in a way that adds up. So they're not equivalent, but it's hard to remember just how amazing Pujols was because of the second phase of his career. So Mm -hmm. we got to revisit it this weekend thanks to the, the scheduling algorithms. So that was nice.
1: Yeah. That's true.
0: Another thing that happened this weekend, the Dodgers swept the Rockies, and they did it on three walk-offs, all by rookies, walk-off home runs, that is. And the last one of those was the most interesting to me. I don't know whether you heard the call that Charlie Steiner made on this home run, but I will embed a little bit of the audio here. And he's hitting 306 in Oklahoma City, and he pops it up into center field. Now drifting on back. That's more the pop-up. That's a walk-off home run. The ball kept carrying and carrying. And Smith hits it out. And the Dodgers win again on a walk-off home run. This time it's Will Smith. This was on Sunday, and it was Will Smith who hit a, a pinch hit Homer to win this game for the Dodgers and if you haven't seen the highlight it does not look like a home run whatsoever off the bat and charlie steiner had the call and he got fooled he said it's a (laughs) pop-up pop-up to center or something and and then he's like and the ball just kept carrying and carrying and it was gone and it went out like in the right center field power alley except that smith is a right-handed hitter so it was a an opposite field shot for him and and this is something that broadcasters get dinged for obviously when they miscall a play particularly an important play and in my home city John Sterling is notorious for having you know home run calls often with him it's it's a ball that he will launch into his home run call and then it won't actually be a home run this was the opposite I'm sure it's not just Sterling I think Steiner has this reputation too although those two used to be partners so maybe it was contagious but I cannot blame Charlie Steiner one iota for getting this call kind of wrong because this did not look at all like a home run to me. And this... Kind of drove home something that Listener Zach Lieberman Had pointed out in an email to us this weekend I don't know if it was prompted by this homer or not But he said over the past few years I've noticed the increase of homers To the opposite field and wanted To know if it is truly an increase or a change In hitting styles I find this especially Interesting as there has been an increase In strikeouts so you'd think there would be more homers To hit to the pull side and this checks Out so this year of the 3,161 home runs That have been hit 400." 82 of them have been classified As opposite field according to Baseball Savant. so that's 15.2% And that is the highest Percentage on record going back To 2008 and If you lump in straight away Shots as well we're up to 41.5% of homers this year have either been straightaway or opposite field. Not sure which one this Will Smith homer was, but 41.5, that is pretty high, because if you go back to 2011, let's say, it was 26.4. So many more of the home runs were pulled, and I can only assume that is because of the ball, because the ball is carrying much farther as it was on this Will Smith homer, and I would think that, much like the ball and its more aerodynamic qualities seem to have benefited moderate power hitters who maybe need that extra boost to get them from the warning track to over the wall, Maybe the same applies to balls hit to the opposite field or straight away that aren't crushed, aren't hit quite as far. So, if you're going to pull the ball, perhaps there's just enough homers that are pulled that are just way over the wall that you're not seeing proportionately the same increase there as you are to balls that are hit a little more weakly. That's my theory anyway, but this was a perfect illustration of that phenomenon.
1: I actually, uh, when I got that email, I wondered if it was inspired by a different home run this weekend, which I had just seen. Uh, which was Gio Urshela, who hit a home run against Wade Miley to break up Wade Miley's no-hitter in the fifth inning. And um, and it was my, um, I don't know. I don't know what the word I want to use is. You know, I was going to brand this phenomenon just now on the fly, and I failed to come up with a brand name. My week, no, come on. I don't know. It's a bad home run of the week. This not my bad yeah. home run of the week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, the the Will Smith one, I really have to give Charlie Steiner... Uh, a lot of sympathy because i knew that it was a home run i had already seen the the tweets the mm-hmm. headlines and then later i watched the video and i went oh i misread it was a, it was just a flare walk off like i had yeah. seen something where it was like the third dodgers walk off of the in a row or something like that and yeah. then i saw the hit and i went oh well it's just a single right a, f- a flare <laughs> yeah
0: and then it was a home run and yep. i knew Yeah, so uh, that's uh, the ball in action, and relevant to that, Rob Manfred recently kind of came clean about the baseball more than he has at least at times in the past. There was an owner's meeting late last week, and as reported by Newsday, Rob Manfred acknowledged that the ball is mostly responsible or perhaps all responsible for the homers we're seeing. He put the blame on the pill at the center of the ball so the pill is like this rubber coated cork and it's wrapped in various layers of yarn and thread under the cover and he is saying and the report by scientists that MLB commissioned last year speculated that perhaps if the pill is better centered inside the ball as a result of some change or improvement in the manufacturing process It would wobble less as the ball is in the air. And for whatever physics related reason, that reduced wobble would lead to better carry, decreased drag. Wow. And so he is saying. He's saying
1: they finally fixed the baseball, that for years we've been playing with a wobbly ball. (laughs) A wobbly ball, yeah. (laughs) And. and I mean, what a travesty to make (laughs) baseball players for 150 years play with a low quality, deformed baseball, (laughs) wobbling all over the place. We finally got it right. We're finally, we have a modern (laughs) baseball. The baseball that the Jetsons promised us is finally here.
0: Yep. All right. unintended consequences of the wobble and this doesn't necessarily mean that it's all the wobble or necessarily the wobble it could still be something with the cover the stitches the laces as some research by meredith wills has shown at the athletic there could be a difference in lace size so i don't think it's conclusive but it is notable that as opposed to in the fairly recent past when he seemed to kind of uh, Discount the findings of that study that suggested that the ball was responsible now at least he seems to be acknowledging that it is and maybe it has something to do with the pill which you wouldn't be able to tell from looking at the ball or feeling the ball which is why there might be something else at play here because pitchers seem convinced that the ball actually feels different on the outside so Anyway, he also said that, you know, he's not sure that this is a bad thing or a good thing that he thinks there's a segment of the fan base that likes lots of homers, there's also a segment of the fan base that likes lots of balls in play and that it's hard to please both of those demographics, which is kind of true. So, he just sort of thinks that Baseball is okay as it is, or at least he is saying that, which he probably should say regardless. But anyway, notable that he owned up to it to a certain extent.
1: Hmm, Yeah, Albert Pujols, through age 30, the best defensive first baseman in history, the third best offensive first baseman in history, and the fifth best base running first baseman in history.
0: Hmm, Pretty good. Great player.
1: Yeah. All right. We talked about the wobbly
0: ball. (laughs) Yep.
1: Talked about Albert Pujols.
0: Yes. So uh, a couple other newsy things that happened. First was just Frankie Montas getting suspended for PD's 80 games. He is probably done for the season, I would think. He's eligible to return like the last week of September. And of course, he wouldn't be eligible for the playoffs. And at that point, you probably just don't even bring him back after that long layoff. So that is a, a big blow to the A's, who... We're sort of saving us From a less interesting Pennant race this year because they're In the thick of the wild card race they've In some ways been a better team Really than last year's team Even though they're not in quite the same Place in the standings but They went on a real run late last year, primarily because their offense just exploded. But this year, it seemed like they might be in line to make a run because their pitching was looking up. There was possibility for Lizardo and Puck and other guys to come back and perhaps reinforce that rotation. But now they have lost their best starter on the season, who was leading the American League in FIP. That is a big blow for them and. It's fairly rare these days, fortunately, for players to get suspended for PDs, particularly for prominent players and good players, and especially for prominent and good players who are right in the middle of pennant races and might actually make a difference in the standings when it's all said and done. So I think the odds were against the A's making the playoffs anyway, and now they're probably a little bit more against that happening. But that is sort of a shame for the A's, obviously, but also for fans because Montas is pretty fun to watch, and the A's are making the season more exciting.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the last PED suspension where it was a guy who, like, sort of fit the 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 way that we used to think of steroids as being like uh, you turn a bad player into a good player. Yeah. And, and Montas, of course, was a a good prospect and. Mm-hmm. Didn't come out of nowhere exactly, but this year he came out of nowhere. And I personally don't think that PEDs work that well, personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that he became a good pitcher. But yeah. uh, in the old days, we always used to kind of like look at guys who came out of nowhere because we were so cynical and suspicious. And without any evidence at all, <laughs> we would accuse them of <laughs> right. doing drugs. Not publicly, not you and me in our under our byline, but like when mm-hmm. I was a 20-year-old in college, I did. Um and uh I'm trying to remember the last guy who you thought, ah yes, when he comes back he won't be good anymore. Uh yeah. or that he did something and you went, ah, that's that's the drugs. And uh-huh. I don't know, is it maybe is it maybe was it D Gordon? Did we feel that way about D. Gordon in twenty sixteen? I don't I think when D Gordon
0: did it, I think it was more like C you don't have to be a big power hitter to, yeah. to be a, a steroid guy. He, maybe it was um Melky, Melky Cabrera. When
1: he w- had the batting title, yeah, 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 uh, w- or yeah, was did he have the what was he coming off a of batting title or he he, he he
0: was hitting he was I don't, yeah. I don't remember what he was hitting but I, I think he was leading in that race or was on the way to a a fantastic season.
1: Man, I'm looking at the list <laughs> of players who've been suspended and uh, these things they just roll right past me. I don't even remember these. Most <laughs> of these I watch these 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 players play every day. <laughs> <laughs> without it ever coming to mind that they were suspended for 80 games in yeah. whatever year. I mean, I'm, wow, him? <laughs> this is a fun list. This is like a remember those guys except it's the opposite. Don't it's like you don't remember those guys being yeah. on
0: drugs. Uh Well, yeah. all right. Frank Montas. It's it's good that it's more of a rarity, although I guess you might think that it because it's more of a rarity, you'd remember it more when it does happen. But really, I think you remember it more when they all come in a bunch, when there's some big, you know, Balco type scandal, when there's a, some sordid affair and investigations and a, a bunch of players get popped at the same time. I think we're probably less likely to remember this, and and people are probably a a little less likely now to ascribe the big performance jump to the drugs or label the players as as evil people. I'm sure that is still prevailing sentiment in some quarters, but you get a little less of that now. So Mm -hmm. anyway, it's uh, it's unfortunate when it happens to a a player like Montas. But Mm -hmm. last thing that I wanted to bring up, we are recording before... Mickey Calloway's press conference on Monday afternoon where he will address his uh, spat with former Effectively Wild guest Tim Healy of Newsday. And maybe Brody Van Wagenen will speak too. It sounds as if Calloway's job is safe for the moment. He received a, a vote of confidence in like the most Stereotypical, prototypical vote of confidence way last week, I think it was, where Van Wagenen said something like, He's our manager. He has my confidence or something. It was like straight out of the GM vote of confidence playbook. And of course, Callaway will be kind of called on the carpet by the media and by ownership, and rightfully so here, because there was a, a clubhouse altercation where. Healy, by his own accounting, said, you know, see you tomorrow, Mickey, on the way out after a kind of contentious session between Callaway and reporters, which came after the Mets blew a game that would have been nice for them to have, would have been a weekend sweep, and instead Lugo gave up the lead and Callaway came under fire for not using Edwin Diaz which it seems like The story of his season and the Mets Season is about Callaway using or Not using Edwin Diaz at certain Times so Healy says that On Callaway's way out of the Clubhouse Healy said see you tomorrow Mickey and Callaway Interpreted it as a a snide Sarcastic comment and He said something about Healy being a Smartass and then he was kind of cursing Him out and then he came back into the Clubhouse and Healy tried to explain what he had been saying and Coway said get this guy out of here and then Jason Fargus jumped in and essentially said he was going to fight Healy and had to be restrained by teammates and he was cursing Healy out and, and the Mets ownership apologized to Healy for this treatment and said he would be welcome and the people involved would be talked to and perhaps Vargas will be suspended. I, I don't know. But this is kind of an ugly episode, always an ugly episode when this sort of thing happens and naturally the media will be on the side of the media member who is the target of this kind of criticism but i think you almost have to be just because it looks so bad for a team employee who's supposed to be the public face of the team and for whom interacting with the media is a big part of the job to just snap like this and lose his temper seemingly unfairly in this case and it's something that i think it's hard for managers to come back from and in the past has tended to whenever something like this has happened it doesn't bode well for the manager i mean by the time it gets to this point generally things have already not been going well which is why it gets to this point but i think it's pretty rare for a manager to come back from this kind of thing and repair his reputation and his standing and keep his job for a very long time so reminds me kind of of the c trent rosecrans episodes Mm -hmm. with brandon phillips and with brian price and (laughs) c trent is still covering the reds and brian price (laughs) is not managing them and brandon phillips is not playing for them so i think that's often how it goes
1: yeah it's a a clubhouse is kind of a weird thing because if i mean you can sort of think about the way that we have our kind of public masks are the way that we present ourselves publicly. We have our, you know, we have our private self, which is what goes on in our brain. And then you have your, your social self, which is not private. It's sort of public. Like there are other people around, but it's not, it's not quite like the same way that you are if you are a public figure acting in a public way. And then you have your public self where you're kind of maintaining your brand. And in our social selves, we say things that are, I mean, there's a lot of dynamics. There's a lot of, Social dynamics at play you have your moments where you're in a bad mood or where something Even somebody that you know, maybe somebody that you love They rub you the wrong way and you say something that you regret and mm-hmm. we we like you're kind of unguarded in those social moments in a way that You're not when you're in your public in your public space yeah. and the, I sort of feel like the clubhouse is this really weird place because these are all public figures Well, they're arguably. I don't know if you would argue that journalists are public figures in the same way. But Mickey Calloway is a public figure. His job is to put on a public performance, and after the game, he is called upon to explain some of his thinking to the public. The media being his conduit, and sometimes to deal with the public reckoning of a mistake. And and it's all very public. But and when you're in the clubhouse, though, it feels much less public and much more social. There's like like guys are dressing. They're sometimes nude, which is a very, <laughs> you know, private, more private than public act. Mm-hmm. They're lounging, they're wearing their street clothes, they're, sometimes they're drinking a beer, there are friendships, there's play, and even among the different kind of the, the media and the players and the different hierarchies there. There's still sort of like, you know the person, you've got an individual relationship with each person in the room in a way that you don't when you're in the public and you're just speaking to the broad faceless audience or the broad faceless mass out there. And mm-hmm. it sort of, I think it kind of has a tendency to sometimes cause people to forget that it's public and their their guard is dropped. They're thinking about this as this is just your day, your your work environment, your social environment and you do something that i think if mickey Callaway had been sitting on a chair at a table in a conference room it would have been very clear to him that, that this was a public moment that he was mm-hmm. presenting the public mickey calloway and this probably never would have happened but there's just something about being close to people in the sealed off dark you know under the stadium part of the clubhouse that makes you feel like no one's there and you're just like folks doing life. And, you know, we all do things. I mean, I say things that are hurtful sometimes to people who I love more than anything in the world and (laughs) come to regret it. So it's not surprising at all that probably a reporter who uh, has a relationship with the manager and a manager who has a relationship with the reporter, that there would be a dynamic that would develop that looks like really weird and embarrassing after the fact for Mickey Calloway. Mm -hmm. I am embarrassed for him. I mean, clearly, this is like a disaster. It's absolutely disastrous for him. And uh, so, I don't know. I'm I'm just sort of
0: wandering around how I think that this could possibly happen. Yeah. I mean, we don't know, obviously, if there's a history between these guys i mean reporters talk to managers all the time it's a a daily occurrence if you're on the beat perhaps he's been stewing over something Healy said a long time ago who even knows and it just boiled over in this moment of frustration and obviously if you're a manager who has constantly been criticized often it seems like legitimately but Probably Callaway is dealing with the Wilpons. His hands are probably tied in a lot of ways. I'm sure it's a a frustrating job in a lot of respects. And some of that he's brought on himself and some of it he hasn't. But this part, obviously, he did. And this makes everything much worse. It it seemed like it couldn't have been much worse going into this game for, for Callaway and his public perception. But At this point, after this, it it seems like just a a matter of time until you almost have to make a change, regardless of whether it will improve the team or not, just to kind of change the narrative a little bit. And and for Vargas, of course, who is a a veteran player and has been around a long time and should know that you do not (laughs) attack reporters or try to attack reporters, even if there is provocation, and in this case there really wasn't, so hopefully he will be disciplined in some way too. But yeah, it's it's an ugly episode and it's a, a weird thing when this kind of workplace dynamic breaks into like macho posturing or violence or something because it's like still this sort of jocks versus nerds kind of atmosphere in a clubhouse. And if you're on the beat, you're you're pretty at home there and you're friendly with people. But there are these moments, I guess, where you suddenly remember that you don't totally belong there. I mean, you do. You're you're guaranteed access, but people don't really want you there, and sometimes they resent you being there. It's almost like the part in the Stompers book where you got shut out of the clubhouse for the, the team meeting, and you were very upset. You were maybe more upset about that than anything else in that season because you were just kind of being excluded, and we felt like we were part of the team part of the story and then suddenly the door was barred and and by the manager in that case even though the, the team sentiment may not have been in line with that so
1: well and and excluded publicly too like right if yeah. if, if there had been you know I, I feel like I, I feel some sympathy for for well, I feel a lot of sympathy for Tim here in a lot of ways I could see that being a, a really almost in some ways frightening situation but sure. uh, to be to be I mean to be in a social situation where the uh, cooler, the cooler, the cooler person, the more popular uh-huh. person, the one with the, the social capital, is uh, insulting you and is telling you you're unwelcome. It yeah. it really, I don't know. It touches the the seven or eight year old part of um, yeah <laughs> of ourselves that we never really grow past. And yeah, I mean, all of us, I think, are to some degree afraid to go out into the world, <laughs> and it's because <laughs> this could happen. <laughs> Somebody could make fun of you with their cooler
0: friends. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's like getting picked on in the locker room. It's, you know, right back to high school or grammar school for some people. And also it added insecurity because it, it jeopardizes your performance of your job in some ways. I mean, in this case, it probably jeopardizes Callaway's job much more than it does Tim's. But if you're worried that the manager won't talk to you, if you're worried that the team won't talk to you out of solidarity with the manager. I mean, you don't yeah. want to to be part of the story in that way. In some ways, maybe it's beneficial to, to get that attention and and get to write about it or something. But I think most reporters do not seek or desire that kind of conflict or, or want. You know, there are some who do. There are some who who antagonize players in print, and and I think they kind of give the rest of us a a bad name to a certain extent but there are very few of those who do that i think most people want to get along and do their jobs and obviously you have to question players and and team personnel and and hold them accountable and ask them difficult things sometimes but for the most part you're around this team all the time you're you know with them every day you don't want that to be a, a tense uncomfortable situation so no one wants this to happen
1: yeah yep
0: All right. That's all I got.
1: All right. Ben, episode 1330. (laughs) Okay. You guys answered a question from Tanner. Uh The question was, is there a consensus around the definition of the term baseball IQ? Are there specific actions that a player can make that gives them the reputation of having a high or low baseball IQ? Or is it as simple as not making errors? Personally, I associate the term with well-timed base running daring do and unusual defensive plays like throwing behind runners. Could it also be extended to more subtle things? And this, your guys' uh, answer of this frustrated me because uh, Tanner, uh, to me, it seems like Tanner was asking specifically about the term baseball IQ. And... You uh, both, Jeff and you, had a nice conversation. I thought it was a productive conversation about (laughs) baseball intelligence and about what gets one person a reputation for baseball intelligence as a baseball player and Mm -hmm. what sorts of things are actually representative of intelligence in baseball. And you continually use the term baseball IQ as a synonym for baseball intelligence. But I felt like Tanner was not just asking, what is smart baseball? What what is a smart what is how does a smart baseball player's smartness manifest? But this term this term baseball IQ as a cliche as a as a term that people choose to use specifically. He says the word term repeatedly in the email the term baseball IQ, and uh, so I didn't really feel like you answered that question. So Uh I went back and found every uh, use of the term baseball IQ over the past 365 days in major newspapers. Uh, Because I also was curious to know what is it that people mean when they use this term specifically. Now, I just want to very quickly also uh, uh, sum up what you guys said about baseball intelligence, which was all three of you, in fact, you, Jeff and Tanner, all referred to uh, some sort of like clever defensive play. Uh, Mm -hmm. You, for instance, said uh, that you thought that baseball IQ often is doing something clever that sticks in people's minds. And Jeff said, you basically need one clever play. And here you were talking about getting a reputation for being intelligent it's one clever play Mm -hmm. and then uh i thought jeff uh, summed up your conversation at the end when he said there are different levels of baseball iq you've got your very thoughtful baseball players who are able to think through a problem and then you got your players who are able to do something really good on the fly i think you concluded with basically that you get a reputation for having high baseball IQ by throwing behind a base runner. You just kept on mentioning throwing behind a <laughs> base runner, but that actually a high baseball IQ would be something like, uh, well, maybe Joey Votto being an obvious example of kind of knowing how to approach baseball so that you'll succeed. But more broadly, just being good at baseball usually requires some form of baseball IQ. So I am going to tell you what the public use of baseball IQ typically refers to so first of all 90 i don't know eight percent of uses of baseball iq and high baseball iq are in reference to amateur players youth players high school players college players draftees it is i i was uh, surprised to find this out but the term is mostly used to describe a young player who is lower than the highest levels of baseball but plays with a sort of sense of awareness that is probably uncommon among high school players. So high school baseball coaches absolutely love using high baseball IQ to refer to their high school baseball player who's not, you know, a weeded out screw up, right? <laughs> like someone who someone who takes the game seriously and knows how to get a bunt down. It's like mm-hmm. your classic, he's mature. It means mature more than anything else. I think. And so that uh, makes sense. And it's not going to really apply that much when we talk about major leaguers because major leaguers, I don't know, mature is uh, is kind of comes with the territory. We already know we already treat all veterans as though they're somehow more mature by being veterans and we don't need yeah. another term. So, so when it gets to major leaguers it's used much less commonly, but here are the players in the last year who have been referred to as high baseball IQ. Logan forsyth Nicky Lopez, Manny Machado, Josh Donaldson, Dexter Fowler, Mitch hanniger Yadier Molina, Jed Jerko, DJ LeMahieu and Tyro Estrada. Those last two were linked. Tyro Estrada was being compared to DJ Lemayhu, saying he has a lot of DJ Lemayhu attributes, et cetera, et cetera, high IQ, and so on. So um, a really a mixed bag there. A Very interesting group of yeah. players who are superstars, players who are role players, players who are strong, players who are uh, you know kind of like less powerful, players who are legends, players who I just uh, learned how to pronounce their name in that <laughs> half second that Dylan edited out. Uh, <laughs>
0: so did it tend to cite a specific example or was it just
1: i'm going to yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you how they each got got Uh their uh there, high baseball IQ, explain. So for Logan Forsythe, high high baseball IQ was basically a synonym for prepared. He's well prepared. He's watching the game a lot and thinking things through in advance, putting in a lot of work to understand what is going to come. Hunter Pence is the one who called him high baseball IQ. And in the same paragraph, he always does his homework. So that kind of thing. Nicky Lopez actually is a little bit of an exception to this because his (laughs) high baseball IQ was a was uh, attributed to him by his high school coach. Uh, <laughs> so even though he is a major leaguer, this was used in a by a high school coach. And it was used kind of in the Extonian way, where it was a synonym for grit and ability to thrive, even though he is not strong. There were no real examples of high baseball IQ. It was just that he's not a physically dominant kind of player, and yet he has managed to work his way up each level by succeeding in his baseball iq manny machado was named high baseball iq by austin hedges and there's not a specific but it's more along the lines of what you and jeff were talking about where to succeed you almost have to be doing a lot of smart things and these smart things are things that ball players would i guess that ball players would recognize but but would not necessarily be anticipated by all ball players. So what Austin hedges said is you don't do what he's done consistently for that many years without really having a high baseball IQ. I've tried to let him walk me through some of his thought process and what gives him an advantage, which is his brain. He's really really smart. I don't think people understand how smart he is. There's also an aspect there of using high baseball IQ, I think to counter a narrative. I imagine that Austin hedges Knows that Manny Machado is criticized by certain media folks and certain fans for, you know, not hustling or for, you know, I don't know, coasting. Would you say that some people think Manny Machado coasts? Mm-hmm. And Austin Hedges is saying very explicitly that that's just not how it works. That's not how it works for Manny Machado. He's a genius. And so there's a, a way of kind of... Uh, countering an implicit criticism with the term high baseball IQ. Mike Schilt called Jim Edmonds, who I didn't name because he's not a player, but Jim Edmonds uh, high baseball IQ, and it was about seeing tiny little advantages in the other team or in the game that you can exploit. Uh, so uh, he, an example was when he spotted a tell in the a pitcher named Reyes, maybe Alex Reyes, I don't know. Reyes' pre-pitch load, Edmonds explained to the pitcher how hitters, oh yeah, to, probably to Alex Reyes. Edmonds explained to the pitcher how hitters might be the next to find it. Reyes fixed the glitch before they could. So kind of spotting small things and being a little bit more detail-oriented detail than the average player. Josh Donaldson is kind of the ability to adjust. He was called High Baseball IQ by Alex Anthopoulos. The ability to adjust to his environment. This was in the context of him being able to hit well in any ballpark because he's able to drive the ball different ways depending on kind of the advantages of the ballpark. Mike Schilt, again, on Dexter Fowler, uh, used it basically as a synonym for experience and having learned from the experience. Tori Lovello called Mitch Hanniger high baseball IQ with no explanation. It was just a long list of, of compliments. Uh, Buster Posey called Yadier Molina high baseball IQ, but not for his catching, which was interesting. Buster says, I'd like to pick his brain Maybe he's just found the slot that works as far as increased power. He's talking about Molina's power this year. I noticed that he gets his foot down early. at, Or maybe it was last year. I don't know. Maybe he gets he, he's just found the slot that works as far as increased power. I noticed that he gets his foot down early at times, and then he'll go with a big leg kick. I think it speaks to how smart he is and how high his baseball IQ is based on who is on the mound. I think he takes his shot at certain times against certain types of pitchers. He knows the guys he's better off staying short with. So this would be... Again, kind of being prepared, thinking through each situation independently uh, or individually uh, and having a plan to attack that situation. And Jed Jerko, high baseball IQ. This is Mike Schilt again. High baseball IQ, very smart guy. They say pinch hitting is the hardest thing to do in sports, and I would agree with that. It's a challenging thing to do, but Jed will figure it out. Smart guy, talented guy. So I don't even know if I got all of them. I don't know if I covered all the people I named, but basically uh it seems to me that you have none of the throwing behind base runners aspect of this at least in the ones that we named it's not usually a single play or a flashy play but it's a, an ability to prepare and an ability to i think help your teammates understand the game a little bit better i think it probably what it means usually when ball players and ball people say it is everybody in baseball knows a whole lot more about baseball than the average fan does. They've been playing it their whole life. They've been coached. They know it all. And then among those, there's a certain a certain percentage of players who are able to even see one level deeper in terms of their preparation, in terms of the game theory, in terms of what the opponent is doing, in terms of the situation, and is able to take advantage of that as well as share it with other people. So that's what I think people mean. When they say high baseball IQ and with maybe with a little even emphasis on the ability to raise the IQ
0: of the team around them. All right. Well, there you go. You got two answers, Tanner. Separated by five months.
1: Uh, yeah. And uh, the first, by the way, the first that I found of this term was in 1982. That doesn't mean it's the first. The newspaper archives are a little harder to search before that. But Gene Mock, 1982. Finally, there's the contribution of Mach, a man best known in the past for his high baseball IQ and low finishes, almost all with certifiably rotten teams. When I was looking in the 80s and so on, uh, high baseball IQ, uh, 80s, 90s, and and early 2000s, more often referred to managers and broadcasters than ballplayers. It it seems that to some degree it has migrated to ballplayers and was more used for off the field
0: types. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Also in the 80s and 90s, about half of references to baseball IQ were about the Mets or the Yankees for some reason, uh, oftentimes critically. And so uh, it might be that this term took off from New York writers. I don't know about that. Ron Gardenhire was, uh, when he was hired as a coach, I think uh, maybe he was still a player, was described as having above average baseball IQ. Uh, And Bobby Valentine said it seemed the year He was on the DL there was a lot of savvy stuff He was still into the game even though he was Injured and that might be to me the most baseball IQ thing that you can do is pay Attention from the bench yeah
0: that's a Good one
1: all right episode 1328 (laughs) Ben I just want to do real quick I want to ask you a question how high do you think you can jump Like if I paid you uh, $500 to, To jump as high as you could How 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 high would a basketball Rim be that you could touch and you can make up A number it doesn't matter Oh boy! Just say any no Say nine feet four inches.
0: <laughs> three and a half feet. What? <laughs> what? That's uh, how high I can jump.
1: No, 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 no! It's <laughs> it's how high is the rim itself? <laughs> you can touch a rim that's nobody knows what three. You can't jump three and a half feet. <laughs> you, <laughs> you said th- any number.
0: I don't okay. Know. All right. Uh, a foot and a half. All
1: right. A foot and a half. You can jump yeah. a foot and a half. For okay. five hundred dollars, you'll jump a foot and a half. All sure.
0: Right. Now,
1: if I. How am I going to put this? If you have to jump one foot eight inches to escape an alligator, could you do it? Yes. You you think you could? So a foot and a half was not your max?
0: Yeah, if my life depends on it, I could probably get a little more.
1: Okay, what about a foot and 10 inches?
0: <laughs> I have no idea.
1: <laughs> now, let me ask you another question. How long do you think you could run a four-minute mile? Like, could you run a four-minute mile for a quarter mile, a lap? Could you run it? And again, just pick whatever
0: I think I could probably do it for maybe a quarter mile. Sure. All I, right. I think i a six minute.
1: What if that same, did I say alligator or crocodile? Alligator. What if that same alligator was chasing you and you <laughs> <laughs> had to run it that longer, like you would die when you stopped. <laughs> then how far, how long do you think you could run a four minute mile pace? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, farther than before, but I i don't think I could do a mile. So <laughs> somewhere between a quarter and a full
1: yeah, I think you can maybe go three quarters. It's what would stop you. It seems like it'd be very hard to, to go, well, that's that. <laughs>
0: well, at some point, you're just not physically it, capable of doing that's ex- it. So. Exactly,
1: you're not. So you guys in 1328 talked about a baseball team, how many games a team would win if they were playing under penalty of death. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you talked about how baseball is actually not a great sport for this because the season is so long and it would be hard to keep it going. For That long and I just listened Thinking that you got it exactly wrong That that it is very Hard to do a Burst of physical activity significantly Better than you already Do that you know you jump as High as you jump it'd be hard to add a foot To your jump just because you were going to die Otherwise you're already jumping more or less as high as You can I don't know that there's that much There for it but I feel like your Stamina would be incredible If you knew that you had to have incredible stamina. And so Fun. to me, baseball is actually the perfect sport to to get extra wins. Now, I don't know if you you could be so, so stressed out that you would choke and panic and do everything wrong and lose, as right. you guys talked about. But if we're just talking about being able to tap into physical reserves to another level of physical performance, it seems to me that you would want a sport like baseball, where the grind and fatigue, and the ability to the inability to motivate yourself every day to be your very best self, every pitch, every plate appearance, to stay focused, to stay concentrated, to see the stakes, to care deeply about what you're doing, is such a character and such a source of um, of of uh, of our shortcomings that, to me. Uh, this is where you'd um, maybe have the most uh, impact.
0: Yeah, maybe so. It's just that baseball players already talk about the grind, and I guess you could say that this would be a way to counteract the grind because <laughs> you're just thinking about dying constantly if you if you slack off at all. But on the other hand, wouldn't it just exacerbate the grind if you're just constantly under pressure? You're playing on pain of death if you lose. Wouldn't that just make you exhausted, and wouldn't you not be able to sustain that pace i i mean i guess if you're facing death maybe you can always go a little bit further or higher or faster than you would under normal circumstances but it just seems to me that like a an olympic event or something where it's like just a short burst of speed or power is what you need then it's like the adrenaline can get you through it but can you keep calling on adrenaline over a seven month season i don't know that you can so, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm sticking with my original answer. Okay.
1: You're welcome to. I, I was <laughs> probably thinking of this more in comparison to other sports with seasons and thinking that I might rather have the every day than have the six days off to think about. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's true.
1: All right, Ben, I want to ask you if this is a record. I have seen this record uh, cited as a record. In fact, I'm going to read a tweet from uh, somebody who says, the streak is alive. There's been a home run in every game played by the Mariners this year, 81 and counting, extending their major league record. Now, the Yankees, I think, I think it's the Yankees right now, have a franchise record by homering yes. in 26 straight games. Right, and I can see how that is a record. Homering in 26 games is a record, and if they allowed a home run in. 20 uh, franchise record 26 straight games well it's not something I would care that much about but I would also see how that is a record but I do not see how combining a positive act by one half of the team with a negative act by the other (laughs) half of the team makes a record
0: No, so, so so they've hit or allowed one. In they have game hit of the or allowed one. Yes, <laughs> every
1: game they played has has involved a home run.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think that counts. Okay, good. Do you, do you prolong the record by giving up a home run? Intentionally do they celebrate if- on the
1: desk, on the on the on the, on the dugout, uh, on the bench?
0: Right. I I don't think so. No, it doesn't count. (laughs) All
1: right. Last week, we talked about Jackie Bradley Jr. nearly stealing second base before the pitch had been delivered. Mm -hmm. And what would happen if, if he had gotten there? Would he get credited with a steal or would he have just advanced on the ensuing play? Would he have to go back to first if there was a fly ball and so on? But Jackie Bradley Jr. had not quite gotten to second base. And so this was all a theoretical question. And then a couple days later, a friend of the pod, Darren, sends sends me a message letting me know that this happened the next day, (laughs) Wow, (laughs) (laughs) which is really coincidental. This was Malik Smith in Seattle, and it was a somewhat less hard to explain situation because there was nobody. They were in a full shift. There were two strikes, two outs. He was on second base. Third base was unoccupied. And so he just took off and the pitcher didn't even react. He got to third, uh, clearly got to third. The camera was able to cut to him getting to third before the pitch was delivered. But all the same, same basic idea here. And so uh, the next pitch was a strike. It was a strikeout. So, but Malik Smith was given credit for the stolen base. But here's the really wild thing. Same pitcher on the mound, both Mm -hmm. Dylan Bundy. And so this seems like it's just a thing that you can maybe do with Dylan Bundy. I, when when it was Jackie Bradley, you felt like you were seeing a blooper. It was like, ah, Jackie <laughs> Bradley left too early. Ah, but the other team didn't get the pitcher's attention in time. That's not how baseball is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. But the Malik Smith thing, I mean, Bundy saw him. Bundy looked at him. He's like, I do not care. And just threw his pitch, focused on his pitch, and got the strike. And so now it makes me think that the Bradley thing was kind of probably the same, maybe the same thing. Dylan Bundy just has a, has a theory of how to pitch with two strikes and two outs. And it involves Recognizing that he's on the Orioles, and none of this matters <laughs> that much, and he just wants to go home. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it does seem like the, there. It does seem like there are easy outs available to Dylan Bundy if he wants to. He uh-huh. has not been a pitcher who has otherwise allowed many stolen bases. He's only allowed five this year, including the one to Malik Smith. So he's not like ignoring base runners generally, but maybe he is ignoring base runners with two outs and two strikes. And so far, uh, it seems. I don't know. Is it working? He walked one guy and he struck out another guy and who knows? Who knows if it's working?
0: All right. Hot tip for any players out there who are on base. Just take (laughs) it. Two strikes and Bundy.
1: (laughs) All right, Ben. I mean, I was going to, this was going to be an episode about bullpens, about (laughs) relief pitchers, updating some things and then playing. Is he good? But I think that we'll just do the updating some things and not do, is he good?
0: Yeah, we did that pretty recently anyway
1: it, uh, Well, but uh, yes, I thought about that we did it pretty recently But I th- I was thinking that it might actually be the sort of thing where That by doing it again, not that much later It hammers home the underlying principle that you're talking about Which is that players go from really good to really bad Like so fast that you can't possibly keep track of mm-hmm. them Like uh, Dylan Floro, for all I know, is bad now See, <laughs> let's see, I'm going to check <laughs> Dylan Floro, wasn't he the guy? Yep. Who had the 0 ERA? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's actually still good. Okay. And uh so uh, there goes that one. Chad Green, who at the time had the worst ERA in baseball, still has an ERA of 7.
0: And so he's bad, but
1: is he bad? I don't well, know. Yeah, and, that's
0: the thing. If if you had like a really terrible or really excellent, well, it's pretty you can go from a, a 0 ERA to a high ERA yeah, exactly. or higher pretty quickly. Yes. But if you're Chad Green and you've got whatever he had and it's hard to whittle that down when you're a reliever only pitching a few times a week for a few innings when
1: when you do is he good in early may then then you're basically doing does he have good numbers this year if you do it in late june now you've got the uncertainty of how do you decide if he's good when his season era might be 6.97 or 6.93 as chad greens is but on the other hand He's allowed one run in June. He has thrown nine innings and struck out 16 and walked one. He is being used as a two inning opener for the Yankees. And the other day, he was almost brought in to close because Araldus Chapman was unavailable that day. So the guy with the 70 RA was the Yankees' right handed closer because he's good. Uh, uh-huh. And so then that would, it's a different game in June, is what I'm saying. In his last eight games, he's got 20 strikeouts in 11 innings with one run so i think chad green is good and he yep. also has a 7 ERA. so that would have been a different game is what i'm saying that's why i was justifying doing it again mm-hmm. in late june but we're not going to do that we don't have the time so mm-hmm. let's just update a few bullpen trends bullpen uh, relief eras are still worse than starter eras this is a A big significant thing we wondered if it could possibly hold it never happens relievers are usually about seven or eight percent better collectively this would be the first time ever that or at least in you know semi-modern relief pitcher usage that relievers have been worse than pitchers and I'm here to tell you that it's still true and in fact it's so true that Tom Verducci wrote a article about it just today Just came came on the wire just a few minutes before we started recording two things in this article. I want to ask you quickly about one is a quote from Brian Snitker who says, I think what you're seeing now around baseball is that a lot of elite relief arms are wearing out. And I'm not sure I buy that. Uh, I think that there is a dilution here, that there's many, many, many more pitchers throwing relief innings, and those pitchers are going to come from the lesser classes of pitcher. But as far as the wearing out, it seems like we're seeing the exact opposite, that part of what's exasperating this might actually be that teams are being more cautious with their pitchers. I looked at, well, the Yankees, as an example, have not used a relief pitcher three days in a row once all year. Yeah, not a single time, which I have not looked up how uncommon that is. I'm going to guess all the way uncommon that it is probably never happened before that a team has never used. Three days used to be normal. Four days is when you would start thinking, is he available? Three days used to be fairly normal. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I looked at zero days of rest. So that would be two days in a row. And we were on pace for twenty eight hundred this year. There were now this this could be a seasonal thing, but I would think that September would actually be the um, the least No days of rest month. Uh, And so uh, I would not think that what I'm saying is I don't think these numbers would probably be misleading. But 2,800 this year, on pace for 2,800 this year, there were 3,056 last year, which is more. There were 3,000 in 2017. And then there were 3,257 in 2016, which is 400 more than we're on pace for, about. 14% Fourteen percent or so more than we're on pace for this year, and thirty-three hundred and twenty in twenty fifteen, which is even more, which is sixty five more than there were in twenty sixteen. So the elite arms seem to maybe be protected. Now, on the other hand, as either Brian Snitker or Tom Verducci points out, the elite relievers might be throwing harder, more high effort, um, right. more yeah, power it could sliders. Be true
0: that... Teams are handling them more carefully and also that also they're flaming out.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It has always felt like the story of relievers is that there is a lot of elite relief arms wearing out. That that seems like why relievers have always seemed like questionable investments because the guy who strikes out 14 batters per nine one year is too wild and gets hurt and strikes out 10 and so on the next year. That's just relief pitchers. Uh, but, uh, right. So what do you think? Are elite relief arms wearing out more than usual in your anecdotal estimation
0: it's not something that i would have thought or that i would assert with any degree of confidence no i I mean it could be true but it's not something that like i've noticed and intuitively feel to be true so i would have to check
1: okay secondly second quote freddie freeman if you bring four or five relievers into the game every night what are the chances that one of them is going to have a bad night pretty good right there's more to that quote that i want to get to but that has always been a, a bit of folklore that Uh, If you go to your relievers, you're eventually going to find the guy who doesn't have it that night. And I've always thought that maybe this is not, I'm on the fence. I feel like logically this doesn't seem to hold up because Mm -hmm. you're also, if they don't have it that night, you're going to get them out pretty quick. You're not asking them to go five innings, like if you have a starter who has a bad night. And so, but here's the other thing. The, it seems like if relievers really were, you know, kind of like within their range of true talent every night, that there weren't wild swings of like, it is his night, it isn't his night, then we would have seen a reliever put up a 60 inning scoreless streak by now. Like this there should be longer scoreless streaks for pit for relievers than there are for starters, because it's so much easier to be a reliever and they have crazy low ERAs. The fact that we still don't see relievers putting up 50 and 60 inning scoring scoreless streaks every once in a while suggests to me that there really is a wide range that when you wake up Every day, it could just be not your day, and that you really might be looking for the time bomb every day. So, I generally think that I disagree with this idea that if you go to five pitchers, you're gonna, the odds are one is not gonna have it that night. But I am sort of also interested.
0: Yeah, I've always been conflicted and fascinated by this theory, and I'm not sure exactly what to think about it. I do think that there is some truth to the idea that guys have better stuff on on some days than others so I don't think that pitchers are exactly the same every day, and the fluctuation in results is purely just random or weather or the batters they're facing or the umpire or whatever. So, I do think there's some fluctuation there. And uh, I've seen some evidence that supports that. Like, Rob Arthur wrote something for 538 a couple of years ago about how you could predict pitcher hot streaks. Like, sometimes pitchers just have better stuff, and it does predict whether they will continue to have better stuff. And there is actually an interesting thing that Clay Dreslow, one of our listeners and the creator of the baseball mogul sim game, posted in our facebook group just about five weeks ago and he did a a sim to see whether it's true that like starting pitchers have good stuff better stuff on some days so he he looked at like the distribution of actual starts and then he compared those to just a randomized simulation of like what starts would look like if guys were the same true talent wise every day and just fluctuated via randomness and Clay concluded, I've done this and the sim with good days and bad days and average days does a better job of modeling MLB than the purely random model. And he says, but you don't need a large effect. So the short answer is that I think the conventional wisdom is true. The pitchers do have good and bad days because there's some evidence in favor of it. And I certainly can't disprove it. But the effect is smaller than you might think. It's quite possible for a pitcher having a good day to give up a grand slam in the first inning and then settle down the rest of the way, which... I think it's true. I think there are good days and bad days, but I don't think it's like you run into one guy who is just so far off his game that he's like normally a three ERA pitcher, but today he's a seven ERA pitcher. I mean, conceivably that could happen, but I doubt that happens. Maybe your command is a little off or you're losing a little velo or you don't have your perfect feel for your curveball, or whatever. So I'm sure that kind of thing happens, but it makes sense that like the more pitchers you go through, the more likely you are to get to someone who's having an off day, but it's also true that you know starters. It doesn't seem that predictive. Like if you're good for six innings, it doesn't mean you're going to be good for a seventh inning. And I don't know because, as you said, you get them out of there quickly. It just it doesn't quite track for me. That I bet there's like a tiny bit of truth to it, but not enough to explain what we're seeing with the bullpens this year. Yeah. Okay. So so for Ducci's, uh his main. He has like three explanations or theories or factors here that he says might be involved in this bullpen collapse. The first one is acceptance of openers. And it doesn't seem like he means that in the sense that relievers are now starting games and skewing the stats because some starting pitcher stats are actually relievers and and vice versa. It seems like he is saying that the more built-in abbreviated starts a team uses, the more trouble you're in when one of your traditional starters simply doesn't have it and that game also becomes a bullpen game there's a compounding effect with too many short starts. So he's suggesting, I guess, that the opener makes bullpen performance worse, which eh, I don't know. I don't know if I buy it.
1: Wait, so did you say that he's not saying that it's simply a matter of attrition now uh, well he
0: he isn't saying that it's just like a matter of how we define starts and relief appearances yeah. so that you know ryan stanick is skewing the stats by right. pitching an inning so he's saying that it it has a compounding effect because uh, <laughs> i don't know that i follow it but when your traditional starter doesn't have it then that game becomes a bullpen game so you use the opener then your traditionally starter doesn't have it and then you end up doing a bullpen game. But I don't know why that's necessarily different than just having the starter start and the starter doesn't have it. and Then you still have to do a bullpen game. So Hmm. I, I don't know that I follow. And then his second reason is more pitching changes, which I think is, is a reason just more pitchers being used. And then the third one is more home runs and, and he points out that like the this is like the second highest slugging percentage allowed by relievers ever this year. But he doesn't explain why home runs would affect relievers more than starters. So I don't know that this necessarily explains anything to me either. So to me, it seems like the effect, aside from like some slight skewing because of the opener, otherwise it's just... Shorter outings for relievers and thus more relievers having to be used. And as you said, teams being more careful so that you're not using your best relievers back-to-back or back-to-back-to-back. And so you just need to, to go to the bottom of the barrel a little bit to get pitchers to pitch in your bullpen. All of that said, it still surprises me <laughs> that that relievers have been worse on the whole than starters.
1: Wasn't the Tango's rule of 17 that, that reliever uh, relievers allowed seven, uh, strikeout 17% more batters when they're relieving than when they're starting? Yes. That they allow 17% lower BABIP when they're relieving than when they're starting, yeah. and that they allow 17% fewer homers than when they're relieving than when they're starting? Yes,
0: yeah, something and like that. So they're...
1: theoretically, the home run thing... Should affect starters more?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't see how it affects relievers, or bullpens disproportionately. So the fact that it's such a sudden downturn, also, I mean, it's not. It's not really one year, but it's. I guess it's like a two-year trend, really. A, yeah, because yeah. I mean, it's. I guess it's a three-year downturn. Well, no, it's not even really. Is it this no, year? It's
1: basically, last year went. Last year more or less cut the gap. Uh, last year went from. Your normal every year was like, you know, there was some fluctuation, but seven or eight percent better. To then last year, I think it, th- starters were three percent better. Yeah. And then this year, starters are like a half a percent better by, yeah, by r- runs allowed, not by OPS, by the way, but by runs allowed. And so it's right. like the last year j- took one jump and this year took an equal jump.
0: Yeah. So the fact that it's two years or a year and a half makes it more believable than if it were half, but it still confuses me because what has changed so dramatically in these past 2 years these are other than the opener this is a long term trend toward more relief pitchers and i think we're actually seeing fewer very short outings right i think the average relief outing at least hasn't really decreased at least in the last couple of years and i think there maybe are more pitching changes still just because starters are are not going as deep into games maybe some of these trends have accelerated a little bit in the last year and a half but it's it's not so drastically different that something that had held up pretty consistently for like decades I would expect to be wiped away within 18 months or so
1: well when we talked about this a month ago a month and a half ago we addressed whether it, the opener is skewing the numbers and mm-hmm. at the time I said it seems clear that the opener is, is probably not skewing the numbers For our purposes because at that point There were very few opener games There were very few bullpen games uh, And we talked about how it was interesting That it hadn't really taken off That That there were a couple of couple of games by a couple of teams but mostly it was just the rays and the rays were even doing it i think slightly less than they had in the latter half of last year but um since then the opener has become much more common across baseball that april it was not may and june it has so this year there have been so the way i search for these starts is a game where the starter goes does not complete three innings does not throw more than 45 pitches I think and does not allow more than three runs. so that's gonna miss some if the opener gets blown out and allows four runs he's not going to show up and it's gonna capture some if the starting pitcher gets a blister. but basically this shows you the games where the starting pitcher did not go deep, did not throw a lot of pitches um, and did not get removed for being terrible and there have been about there have been 87 of those through 75 games this year so there's about one a day. Which is double what there were last year at the same point, uh, and it's already double what there were in any previous season uh, through the entire year. So they are—they have picked up. There's a lot of teams doing it there for you know, usually just for like one spot. But like Cam Bedrosians had seven of these, Chad Greens had six of them. So those are teams that are using this as really as a spot in the rotation, and mm-hmm. it is there have been enough now that it is a little bit hard to. Fully discuss the statistics, the starter versus reliever statistics, without digging into how much that is affecting things. And so I am kind of at a limit of how much I can rule out Mm -hmm. right now without doing that work. Okay. Yeah.
0: So I'd like to see conclusively like openers removed to Mm -hmm. the best of our abilities. Mm -hmm. and than the rest i I guess you'd maybe also have to remove just the headliners or the bulk guys or or whatever just wipe away all of that and see the traditionally used pitchers you know (laughs) other than the lighter workloads and see because the gap is small it's like you know the starters this year have a a park-adjusted FIP of 100, that's average. Relievers have a park-adjusted FIP of 101, so they're just a tiny, tiny bit worse, and strikeout minus walk rate difference is like half a percentage point, and so it's enough that maybe removing openers would push things back toward relievers. Probably not enough, though, that the gap would be as big as it has been historically, but at least to like the the side that Makes sense logically to me because i get that the gap would be growing smaller just because the difference between what a starter is and what a reliever is is growing smaller and because you're using more relievers and you need to get more guys who wouldn't have been pitching previously and even though player development has improved and maybe teams are better at making guys like that maybe that's not keeping pace with the lighter workloads so that makes sense to me but if it does swing fully in the direction of bullpens being worse, then that will mystify me still.
1: Verdugis' contention is that relievers are getting worse, and I also would say that there's good reason to think that collectively, collectively, because the population has expanded, they would be getting worse. However, it is still my probably my guess that what is more expected and what is more happening is that starters are getting better. Um, mm-hmm. that starters are are better and better at taking advantage of the decreased demands that are put on them. And that if you can only compare, if you can only tell how good a group is in relation to another group, then it's hard to figure out which one is moving. Yeah. But I sort of feel like this phenomenon is underselling how much starting pitchers are moving toward getting
0: better. Yeah, because maybe they've just gotten to the point where they've all internalized that they don't need to go into a game expecting to go deep. And so yeah. they're pitching like relievers would pitch. There's also
1: fewer of them because of the opener. There are fewer mm-hmm. there are fewer pitchers that are kind of five and six inning starters. So the population of them is actually contracting and only the the better ones should be surviving. Yeah. Last yesterday, Nick Anderson got a save, and Kevin McCarthy also got a save. Both of those are people who have the same names as more famous people, Mm -hmm. Um, but they also both got their first save last year, and that means 125 players now have a save this year, which is more than in all of 2009, More, more also than in all of 2005. There were 124 in each of those years. Uh, so your, um, your trend that you identified a couple years ago of the democratization of saves is truer than ever. Neither McCarthy nor Anderson is any good, but they both got <laughs> saves yesterday. So 125, that's more. If you remove three inning saves uh, from that, because some, some guys who have one save, it's because they came into a blowout. Neither of which is true of McCarthy or Anderson, but it is true of some. Still well ahead of the pace of, of last year and previous years, although not quite so striking.
0: All right, then. Well, Fantasy players, don't pay for saves. Don't pay for saves. Just get, just pick up
1: Nick Anderson, Kevin McCarthy.
0: Get Our one. first piece of fantasy baseball advice in seven years. <laughs> fantasy players have been hanging on, waiting for a hot tip. There it is. It's the same tip that you've been reading forever, but it, it's even more true today.
1: Freddie Freeman quote in this Verducci article, as hitters, we've gone back to the idea of let's get into their bullpen, which uh, a lot of writing was done on pitchers going away from that old idea. Do you think that's wise? Should you be trying to get into the bullpen or should you just hit your pitch? Yeah, I don't
0: think you should
1: try to get into the bullpen. It's,
0: nah. I,
1: <laughs> I feel like the the way that pitching is now, there's such a advantage for the pitcher to getting deep counts, two strike counts particularly, that batters are mm. so... the All of the offense, all the missing offense in baseball is basically two-strike offense. Like there's so many two-strike counts and it's so hard to hit with two strikes now because pitchers are so good at striking you out that I think that the benefit of hitting, you know, of being active early in counts and trying to hit the best pitch you see uh, outweighs the benefit of trying to get into the bullpen, even if you do think it is useful to get into the bullpen. Yeah, I agree. And lastly, I want to give you a quote that has nothing to do with any of this. I want to go back to Nikki Lopez, Ben. <laughs> okay. Nikki Lopez, High Baseball IQ, that article. He has a quote in this article. This is an article about his life. It was written in his hometown newspaper. Since I was four years old, he said, everyone wanted to be an astronaut or a doctor, whatever, but I wanted to be a baseball player. (laughs) Like, is that a thing? All the kids want to be doctors, but he had this unconventional dream of making the major leagues. Is baseball really that dead in culture that everybody wants to grow up to be doctors and Nicky Lopez was the nerd who wanted to be a major leaguer? (laughs)
0: You get picked on for wanting to be a professional athlete in this obscure sport. Oh, gosh, I I hope not. (laughs) Baseball will really be dead when (laughs) aspiring to be a big leaguer. (laughs) I
1: I wasn't sure what to make of that quote because I thought that if he had just said doctor, then I could see his point being like everybody was practical and their parents and their counselors told them to do something practical with their life. But I stuck with baseball. But he also says astronaut. Yeah. Which is the opposite? Like the astronaut is the genre of impractical, like yeah. dream job for a four-year-old. So I'm not sure if he's saying that a baseball player, everybody else was crazy and wanted to be astronauts, or everybody else was practical and wanted to be doctors. <laughs> it, they're opposites. I don't know. Good quote. Good job, <laughs> Nikki Lopez.
0: Yep. High baseball IQ. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Alright, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. I'm enjoying these Sam follows up on old episode segments. Someone in the Facebook group I think suggested that we should call them Reflectively Wild. I noticed that they're mostly Sam disagreeing with things that Jeff and I said, but I guess that makes sense. He's only going to bring it up if he has something to add or counter. Wouldn't be very interesting if he just said, I agreed with everything you said about that. So I'm in suspense every time now, waiting to hear what he will dredge up from early this year or last year. Quick follow up on a couple things Sam and I did. Discussed after we talked The Mets fined but did not suspend Jason Vargas and a not particularly Contrite Mickey Calloway Brody Van Wagenen said the altercation was disappointing It was regrettable on many levels But he gave another vote of confidence To his embattled manager Calloway called it a misunderstanding He said I don't need to tell my side That doesn't help me in any way And he thinks his outburst showed that he was A passionate competitor Alright then, and I'm sure it was a complete coincidence That shortly after those fines came down reports surfaced via Mike Puma and others that Brody Van Wagenen Has on multiple occasions during Games this season texted staffers Presumably in the clubhouse to Direct Mickey Calloway to make moves During games including pulling Pitchers which is pretty unorthodox for A GM to do that during a game as Opposed to saying something after the game Certainly didn't go over well when Sam and I Tried to do that with the stoppers we learned our Lesson and one of those pitchers who was reportedly Pulled at Wagenen's behest Jacob Gram, who spoke on behalf of the the players said that their main focus is turning the page so we too will turn the page the other update as for the matter of whether hard throwing relievers are burning out quickly well we can add one to that list cardinals jordan hicks has a torn ucl which means he is likely headed for tommy john surgery that's a blow to the cardinals and it's unfortunate for fans because jordan hicks is fun but i will admit to being not completely flabbergasted that the guy with a 102.4 mile per hour average four seam fastball this year might develop elbow problems they is a little bit of a correlation there you can buy my book the mvp machine how baseball's new non-conformists are using data to build better players thanks to all of you who have written in in some form or another to tell us that you like the book Thanks to those of you who have left a review on Amazon and Goodreads. Those really help us out. If you've asked your library to order a copy, that helps us out too. Tell a friend, give it as a gift, or just gift it to yourself. I hope and think you'll enjoy it. You can also support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com effectivelywild. And I should just say, because I rarely remind people that there is a reason to support the podcast on Patreon other than the fact that it just helps us keep doing the podcast, you also get something out of it besides the podcast continuing. Of course, if you At the $5 a month or higher level We will thank you at the end of an episode Like I am just about to thank Max Twine and Mark Eschen And Andrew O'Hara and Brad Beherns And Jameson Weiss But if you're at the $10 level and up you will get Access to two Patreon exclusive live Podcasts that we typically do during The playoffs where we just talk during the Game the whole game with Patreon supporters Or if you're at the $15 A month or higher level we will place a Higher priority on answering your email questions And you will also courtesy of Clay Dreslow get a free copy of Baseball Mogul 2019, a $34.99 value. If you're at the $30 or more a month level for two months or more, you will get access to a Fangraph's ad-free membership, which is a $50 annual value. If you're at the higher levels, you can qualify for an autographed copy of my book with Sam. You can be on a listener email show. So there's some swag you can get. There's some perks. There's some rewards. In addition to the satisfaction of having supported something you like. So we do thank everyone for pitching in on Patreon as they can. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. And you can contact us via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. If you are a supporter, please do message us through Patreon because we will be more likely to see it and answer it. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and Sam and I will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then.
1: Long. I hear you walking like a tired dog All alone in the wild untamed
0: A fading face in the picture frame Well I'll be waiting when the cuckoo calls A different place but the same four walls I
1: hear you crying for some